Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 111, with Matt Halfhill. And welcome to episode 111 of Makers of Sport Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. For those of you that are longtime listeners of Makers of Sport, you know that I have a love of sneakers and footwear. I, I often like to call myself a recovering sneakerhead as prior to having three kids, I used to spend every single extra dollar I have on sneakers. On this episode, I'm welcoming an early internet entrepreneur who had a similar passion for sneakers and digital media and turned it into a lifelong career. He is one of the first ever content creators around sneakers, and he did it all prior to social media. His brand, Nice Kicks, was the first ever sneaker blog in internet history, and it has stood the test of time and grown into one of the most trusted sources in the footwear industry with over 4 million followers on Instagram, 860,000 followers on Twitter, and 600,000 subscribers on YouTube. And that obviously is just his social channels as his website includes millions of visitors. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast a guy whose website has been my go-to source for sneaker news for over a decade. A digital entrepreneur, a writer, a commentator, a content creator, and sneaker influencer. Most notably, he's the founder and CEO of NiceKicks.com. Welcome aboard, Matt Halfhill. What's up, man? Thanks for coming aboard the show. How's it going? Thank you very much for that intro. Quite a few years you've been following us online then. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I I grew up, uh, uh, you know, I think we discussed on the phone at one point in time. We were fairly close to the same age. Um, I'm 37, and uh, and I know that you're somewhere around in there. But we uh, I, sneakers kind of came of uh, kind of had a moment, right? Like when we were in maybe middle school and and whatnot. I actually um, there was a the, you do you remember the uh, NBA dunk contest, the East Bay Funk Dunk with Isaiah Ryder? Oh my goodness! The yes, classic I sure between do. the legs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so for me, um, he was wearing these white Converse sneakers and I had this massive poster of the dunk contest in my room. Well, later the brand released, uh, his own sneaker called the Con- uh, Converse Sky Rider. And they were all black with like the subtle purple tongue right. and a white Converse star. Uh, so I had to have them. Right. And, uh, I lobbied my parents for a, a Timberwolves Jersey, number 34, you know, the old school champion Jersey and, and as well as those sneakers. And what's funny is they were, I think they were retailing around like $75 at the time. And my parents were like blown away at the price. Like this is craziness. Why would we pay this much money for shoes? But I fortunately ended up, ended up getting those. And, and for me, that was what sort of started my love affair with, I guess, sneakers. And, and then slam, I got a slam mag. That was in sixth grade. And I got slam magazine too in sixth grade for the first time. And that obviously it was, it was over after that. So what about you, man? Like when was, do you have something that was, uh, that was like a moment that you can remember where, um, you really just discovered like this uh, that you were kind of smitten with the footwear industry. 
For sure. So we had a column we actually started many years ago on the site called Kickstarter, which in today's world, you say Kickstarter, it means something different. But we always go back to it. Like, what was that shoe that got you hooked? Which was a common uh, conversation at lineups, uh, which unfortunately kids don't know about today anymore. Um, But the my Kickstarter was the Iverson Answer One, uh, the Reebok Answer One in a in that navy blue patent colorway. Um, Oh yeah, I I had those. I had those. And yeah. It's a great shoe, DMX cushioning. And I remember in, in my class, in my eighth grade English class, uh, Dwayne had the black pair. John had the all-star, the white and red pair. And you know, I didn't want to have the same shoes as everybody else, right. two other people in my <laughs> class. But I love that model. So I'm like, like you, I remember even one of them saying, no, you can't get this shoe. You got to go get another colorway of it. Right, right. And it was the first time I ever got my parents to buy a pair of shoes from the mall. Uh, before that, I had the $50 Big Five uh, ceiling on on uh, shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow I swindled my mom into buying me a pair of shoes from the mall, which is, I think, probably the first mall purchase in my life. Like my family was just not into shopping like that yeah, at yeah, all. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's what really got me started. And then you know, that was right about the time that the... Um, that the Kicks magazine came out, Slam magazine. I started, yep. you know, seeing Slam as well, mm-hmm. um, and I got the East Bay catalog. Once I, I, st- I think I did wrestling the year before, and I started getting the East Bay catalogs. And the only thing I was looking at was like the wrestling gear. I didn't look at the other stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but then once I got that, once I got the shoes, and then I started flipping through all the pages of East Bay, and yeah, that was. That was the start of it. Um, yeah, East Bay was where it was at back then, man. That was how you found out what was what was coming out. It seemed like, um, yeah, and, and be able to see and be able to see stuff. And I always liked that. You know, I was like that guy. You know, the the old Joe people who read who buy Playboy to read the articles. I was the guy who didn't look at East Bay for the pictures. I wanted to read about all the different technologies and all <laughs> the, what made a shoe different. Like I was that nerd who had to know every little detail about um the products and i think that translated well into my first job um i I, my first job this might not come as a surprise to people today uh was selling shoes at a store called athletes world at a mall in uh canada yeah Uh, and that's when that was my first job um as a teenager okay yeah and you know it's it's kind of funny you mentioned the the uh that particular iverson because i almost had a very similar story my best friend in my neighborhood he got the black ones. And I was, I was, I wore like a size 13 ever since like eighth grade. Right. And you just cannot find 13s like back in that, back in that, even now, right. Like what is it, like 12, 11 through 13 are really hard to find or something like that. Um, uh, it, standard size run was only one size 13 in a box of eight in a run of 18. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously like I was not getting those. Right. And then, so my boy got the, got the black Iverson, uh, or the black, uh, answer ones. And, uh, and we were both like big Allen Iverson fans. I think probably everybody that read slam magazine was an Allen Iverson fan at that time. Um, and, and so I had to have those as well, but, uh, I, I kind of want to take it back, man. So you, um, uh, you know, you obviously are living in Austin, Texas now, which is a great city. South by Southwest is there. I've been there many times. Um, but tell us a little bit about your upbringing, because I know that you kind of moved around a lot and you also had parents that were, I believe, college professors. So I'm curious, like, you know, tell us a little about, about that moving around and kind of how that sort of helped shape you, I guess, culturally and, and um, allow you to kind of also explore sort of creatively and, and like a, a curiosity with like the internet and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. So my background, my upbringing, I was born in 1984 and 
if you saw who my parents were and knew their background, you would say there's absolutely zero chance this guy would have anything to do with sneakers, like zero chance. Um, my dad is was born in backwoods of like Southern Ohio, uh, hillbilly kind of family. And my mom's from a farm uh, in, in Southern Wisconsin, uh, but they were both professors at Fresno State. And that's where I was born was in Fresno, California. Um, I spent the first like 15 and a half years of my life in Fresno, uh, which saw some great times when it comes to sports. Um, you know, that was when we joined the Western Athletic Conference and, you know, I think the first year they won the WAC championship, uh, upset USC in the Freedom Bowl. Yep. Um, and, you know, Jerry Tarkanian came in there like 95 um, for, you know, to totally revamp, re-energize everything when it comes to, it comes to the football program. Uh on the softball side of things, women's won a national championship in 98. Um, and it was just like this really incredible time to grow up as a, as a, you know, kid who was so close to Fresno state university. Um, but when I was uh, 15, we moved to the Caribbean. My parents taught at a school, the St. George's university uh, down in Grenada. Um, and that was when I first discovered that this love of shoes was not just an American thing. Um, you know, I, here I am in a country where like, we didn't even have internet some weekends, like the internet would just go out to the Island. That was it. Um, and, but kids knew about sneakers. Like I walked into school and I, like the kids mouths dropped when they saw that I had the Jordan 14s on. Um, and I was just, I was blown away because I saw that a lot of the kids there had copies of East Bay magazines as well and, and other like materials that their families would mail them down. And I'm like, Oh, and I was just blown. I was just so taken aback. Cause I'm like, here I am in another country and the kids have so much in common with me in their interest of shoes. And we did the same exact thing down in Grenada as I did in Fresno, which was talking about shoes, looking at shoes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then shortly thereafter, my family moved um, to Victoria, BC, um, so I actually went to high school for, for four years in three different countries, finishing off in Victoria, BC. And, um, I went and got a job at, um, at athletes world in Canada because I, I, a wanted a job when I was in like uh, 11th grade. Um, I didn't really know anybody. I just moved to town and I thought, well, like, look, I don't want to just sit at home all the time. Uh, let me just go get a job. Maybe I'll meet people through that, whatever. Um, so that's what got me started there. Um, but I really think that, you know, moving around and seeing that people had interest in shoes in all these different areas and, uh, really hope helped open my eyes, um, to not only how, you know, while on the service, we might seem very different and our circumstances are very different. We have, we, you know, passions and interests can be quite similar. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and it almost seems like, uh, that that was, that kind of flagged something for you that, that uh, internally or maybe subconsciously that that you eventually tackled later on, but it, it also seems like I think from our previous conversations that um, kind of like this re- really interesting moment with the internet also happened. Like we were we were uh, you being born in '84, me in '83. Like it's this very interesting time in history with technology and with culture and like sports and uh, you know especially like sneakers and fashion and these types of things where you know we kind of remember what things were like pre-internet. 
Um, and then we also yeah. sort of like the internet hit. And so you were one of the guys that kind of like for me personally, my parents is kind of funny. Like we, we had a computer in our house, but it was literally had like Microsoft Word and some like dirt bike video game I could play or something. And they wouldn't get the internet because like at the time they thought it was just like all like porn and credit card thieves or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but you, uh, I, I would always go to my friend's house to download like songs off of Napster or LimeWare or, or whatever types of things that were happening at the time. So I didn't get to really experiment whereas like it seems like that you did and you got to go and you kind of like started teaching yourself html and kind of dabbling in some web design stuff early on right yeah so i i I, my first computer i got like in the second grade it was an old packard bell um no internet connection whatsoever i don't even can't even remember if we had a three and a half inch floppy drive i think we had that but we did definitely had a lot of stuff was running off the five and a quarter um and i got an eighth i got another computer in the eighth grade um, and we got signed up, we signed up for AOL at that time. And to me, that was like, that was the start of me with the internet. Uh, and I really like almost, I'd say only a couple months in, I started building websites and whatever, and they were just like, just for fun kind of things. Um, but to, you know, got into doing stuff with HTML and all that kind of stuff and just tinkering around with, with the internet at that time, um, and I started using it early on because uh, there was a, some like kind of an interest or passion of mine before sneakers was music. Um, I, I not a lot of people know it. I was in a uh, Dixieland jazz band um, as a as a child, um, and I played the four string tenor banjo, which is not as common as a lot of people might think. There, are, normally when you see a banjo, you see a five string bluegrass style. A four string tenor or plectrum banjo, is, it was played in New Orleans and it originated from Ireland. But long story short, you can't find those in Fresno, California very easily. <laughs> yeah, I would so imagine, eBay yeah. and the internet was my first use of that. And so I actually started buying and selling musical instruments um, on eBay when I was like in the eighth or ninth grade. And that was like my introduction to, I guess, commerce on the internet um, was was that. Um, but the thing that I think was the big takeaway was I was like, wow, I can get access to almost anything through this thing called the internet. And it's also a cool place where you can like tinker around and build things and see them happen in real time. Right. So... What's, it's it's quite interesting to hear that story because I feel like they were kind of kind of peeling back the layers a little bit. Um, I, I always I always find it interesting when you meet people and you you kind of like um, uh, you know I think being a sneaker like a quote unquote sneaker collector or sneakerhead like it kind of has like this whole cliche vibe right where it's like oh like this this dude listens to hip hop and um, you know collects Jordans and you know whatever it's almost like you feel like you can you can. Uh, create this persona of who that person is. But I've found that it's almost like never the case either, right? Like there's definitely some of those out there where it's like a total cliche, like walking cliche. But then then like for me personally, I mean, I've I've not only do I love sneakers, but coming from like a blue collar area, um, which is not too uh, dissimilar to where your your dad grew up, um, in kind of like the Appalachian region of Kentucky. I mean, other things too, right? And so, like, I, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll rock some cowboy boots here and now, right? Like, for me, it's like I almost, I almost want to be like the opposite. I remember when I was growing up in the, uh, in the country, like I always wanted to rock Jordans and that kind of thing, and and sort of be different that way. But now that I kind of have like moved back to this rural area, um, you know, living on some land and raising my kids in like a small town, 
I sort of am like, uh, or I'm sorry, like when I was at, moved to Lexington and lived in the city, like I was like, well, let me tap into my country roots, right? So I was more like not wanting to rock the Jordans and that kind of thing and kind of like vice versa. But it's always interesting to me when you kind of peel back those layers. Um, something that happened at some point, um, you obviously ended up going to college for a little while, right? Um, I know that you ended up dropping out. And so I am curious to hear about how that went over with with your college uh, professor parents. Um, because it does seem like that people with our sort of age or internet entrepreneurs, I guess, from our kind of like age demographic, that was a common thing, right? Because you were just like, I'm learning web design on my own. Uh, I think I want to like quit and, <laughs> and go do my own thing. And this is, we're learning things that are old technologies or whatever. Yeah, so about that, that was uh, not an easy conversation. And I actually had a conversation just a couple days ago. Being reminded, I can still go back, There are, that they had lots of students who were in their 30s and 40s who were great <laughs> students. And it's like, oh my gosh, this won't end. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate it. Like, I mean, there's, I, I'm still learning, you know, like every day I'm learning so much. And it's not, you know, like, I guess there, there's definitely is, there's space for formal education. I mean, I would not want a doctor who has not been formally educated. I would not want right. an accountant who's not been formally educated. I would not want a lawyer who hasn't spent years studying. But, you know, there are a lot of other professions where, you know, it, it's just, it's the, the case studies are not quite there yet. And I think that light bulb moment happened for me after two years of, of university where um, I, I looked through, uh, you know, what I changed like directions twice or three times in, in university uh, at this point. But I looked all the way f forward to year four of software engineering, um, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, they're not even anywhere close to any of the the technologies or, or you know coding that I'm doing right now. Like, just not even close to it." And I just thought, "Look, this just isn't the right time right now." You know, I've I've, I've been I started Nice Kicks like when I was like a you know, started doing stuff in like the week before I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have to say, like, I, I, I'm not going to say college just failed me. It's that I don't think I really gave college much of a chance for me because I was already just so busy into this and so mm -hmm. busy into shoes and so busy into looking at what I could build for into the internet rather than right. what I could learn. Um, at university. Well, there's like this classic Mark Twain quote, uh, and I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but it's something to the effect of, I'll never let my schooling interfere with my education. And it almost seems like it's yep. kind of that way, right? It's like school is so, and this is a rabbit hole we could obviously go down deep into, so so I won't go too, too deep here because my I have some very controversial opinions on <laughs> on college education of, as of today. But um, I think if someone is passionate about what they do and you have the ability to find things on the internet and, and sort of like you know how to learn or you've been taught or you've learned how to learn, right? Uh, whatever way that is for you, whether that's through like visual and watching tutorials or whether that's through reading books, um, then, then you really just create your own education and you kind of move in and you, and you can kind of see like most of the entrepreneurs of the world have done that, right? They, they kind of just figure it out. And they just move on to the next thing, and then it's like yeah. I think yeah. There's there's a lot of tools out there to to educate yourself. I think the one miss that I I see a lot with it is that while there's a lot of ideas and a lot of things you can learn, if you don't actually apply them into any form of execution, you don't get the same type of learning as you would in the university setting. And I right. think that is one thing that I encourage to young kids if they're you know wanting to 
you know, learn or study as much as they can with the internet. It's like, well, make sure whatever you're studying, you are doing executing, even if it's on a small scale, even if it's a dummy site, even if it's a whatever, like my first website I built that I indexed in Yahoo, where I discovered what this idea of SEO was, I did when I was like 16 years old. And it was, I built a school project site where I built, what was it built? It was called like, what was the name of that site? Uh, it was a website that had all these different performance modifications for E-class Mercedes-Benz. And I outranked Lorenzer uh, wheel company for Lorenzer wheels. Wow. And that's when I first discovered it. But that was like where I'm going with this. is like apply what you're learning and actually do something, even if it's not even for making money. Like just make something. Just do something with what you're learning and practice it. Right. Exactly. You have to make something sort of tangible. And speaking of that, um, there, I think a lot of people that listen to the show know that I'm a very big advocate on like sort of niching down into an industry or topic. And, um, you know, then you, then you essentially become an expert at it. So, so for me, like I was always passionate about design brands, advertising and tech, but, but very specifically in sports, like I don't, I still care about those things outside of sports, but in the sports world is where I like really get pumped up about it. So I founded this maker of sport to discuss and comment on those things. But I had read online that, um, you had an English professor once, um, in college telling you to, uh, essentially it was like to know more and more about less and less. And that like really resonated with me. So I'm curious if you could kind of elaborate on that and discuss how it essentially kind of shaped you into, pursuing nice kicks full-time or, or kind of making that your area of expertise? For sure. So I call him my first professor, but he's actually my 12th grade English teacher. Uh, Mr. Stack was my uh, teacher. He was, um, this is grade 12 in, in Victoria, BC at Claremont Secondary. And uh, I actually looked him up a couple years ago to thank him for something. But um, he he really stressed the idea that as you get older, you're going to need to know more and more about less and less. And he'd say it over and over. And, you know, I know it just went in one ear out the other for a lot of kids, but for whatever reason, I just really listened to what he was saying. And I didn't think I fully grasped at it because I was that kid who wanted to learn as much as I could about absolutely everything. Um, but yeah, I, I now see, I really get what he was talking about, which is, you know, knowing as much as you possibly can to become the expert um, on, you know, something very specific makes you, quote, the guy or the girl that needs to be contacted when there's an idea or, you know, somebody needs advice or, you know, whatever else. But it, it's extremely important to know as much as you can about something, you know, is, is, is smaller in scope. And I think the best thing you can do is find what it is that you're very interested in and start narrowing that scope on that. Because what will happen is that it doesn't become a task for me to obsess over the smallest details on a specific product or a specific you know, company. It's like I do it in my spare time kind of thing. Like I want to know as much as I can about, you know, the origin of footwear manufacturing in America, you know, like, or, you know, how, how, how is it that the rubber monopoly being broken up by antitrust then spread into like the, the foundation of sneaker companies, you know, like you're not going to find a lot of stuff out there unless you, you know, have that passion or interest to really keep diving in and peeling back that onion to get to the answer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's very fascinating too. It, it just shows how 
how um, uh, complex you can make a singular topic um, without, you know, most people think, oh, nice, like kicks. Like, oh, you, you, you write about sneakers or whatever. It's like such a... Uh, a commodity type topic, right? But then like, as you go and see like how everything is so connected, right? And uh, to like various economies and various like manufacturers that make things. And, and you know, like that part for me, like I'm not, I don't care about that, right? Like I'm, I'm a very visual designer type person. So for me, I'm like very much into like, what does the sneaker look like? And not even necessarily like, how is it sort of constructed? I never really was into like, what is the upper made of and all these things. So that that sort of world of the, I'm, I'm definitely into like the graphic design side of sneakers. Um, but, but I think that that's what's so interesting about about your site is you sort of cover both of those aspects. So um, what, at what point in your journey did, uh, it seems like that I, I was reading or I'd heard somewhere that like it, it, at, initially it was just like an online moniker or something for you and then maybe it became a blog later? Yeah, we'd first done e-commerce um, in, in the early days, but I, I really was, it was about 2000, end of 2005, 2006. I started dabbling in 05. Um, with the idea of a website that was about information rather than trying to sell goods. Um, and if we started April 7th, 2006 was our first post. So we're just about to hit our 15th anniversary next year um, of the blog. And for me, like, I just, I really, I don't know what it was, but like, I really found that I spent all this time on forums and message boards and I really cared way more about learning about products than it was having or buying or selling them at that point. And I thought like, well, blogs or sorry, message boards and forums are great ways for people to connect and share information, but their structure is, is such that it, they're, they're pretty hard to consume information on. Uh, you know, there are certain things people really want answers to. Um, and so going back to like, you know, the, my, my work, in doing like SEO, one of the first things you do is like, you want to figure out, put your thinking cap on, put yourself in someone else's shoes, no pun intended on what they're looking for. And so I started researching and found like a lot of people are looking for information on when certain shoes come out. And, you know, now you have like a bazillion apps that do that for you. Right. But in 2006, there weren't there were that many sites there any place that you could get verified information like even nike.com's faq section had outdated stuff i mean it was it was a mess you, and you had to kind of piece it together and i thought well if i'm just doing the piecing work together why don't i just piece it together and put it on a page on the on the website and then when it comes to the shoes like there was a lot of you know misinformation spread around, and maybe there'd be a release date change, or you know, a product would get dropped, or it'd get you know pushed to another season, and people wouldn't know when things were coming out or what was coming out. And I thought, well, you know, blogs are a great way to stay updated with news happenings. I'd been reading them for technology stuff. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe there should be a blog that's just about sneakers, a blog just about shoes. Um, and you know, a couple of months before, I guess Hypebeast had come out that had done sneakers and streetwear through you know that lens. But I I wanted it to just be sneakers and not just the product, but really dive into like this, the backstory and the history of the shoes um, and give you mo much more information than just like the name of the product or whatever. But right. you know, 
who is like th- the fact that this is a trainer that Bo Jackson wore and exactly who is Bo Jackson. And let me sneak in through the, the details as you read this paragraph that he went to Auburn, that he was this multi-talented athlete, that, you know, he was one of Nike's first poster boys in a, in a category that they created in 1986. Right. You know, and for me, I thought that the blog was a great way to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, and, and so how, I mean, at that point in time, like 2005, we're talking uh, Facebook had, ju- I think I had just gotten on Facebook. It came to my school. Like where, where did this, yeah, where I did you have, find I this? I couldn't get on there because I didn't have, yeah, a, you didn't I have, didn't have a, a, you, you didn't have a dot edu, man. Um, how, like where, I didn't have a dot edu. <laughs> where, where did you find this information though? Right? Like, cause it's, it's back that you had to like really scavenge for stuff back then. seems like you yeah, you had to scavenge. You had to save like bookmarks. You had to just read through old entries. I remember I did a lot of research by actually clipping out and reading through old stuff that was um, uh, old adverts and old magazines. You know, like back in the 80s, it was a very common type of ad type um, that a lot of a lot of brands were doing where it was like an info page yep. um where it was like a content inclusion page where they had to put it up at the real t- at the top of the page advertisement right right even though it looked like content they try to disguise um, it as content yeah 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 so it was a very common thing on the left side you see a nice glamour shot of the shoe or an athlete running and then on the right side you'd have all the breakdown of the technology um so i had to like i remember i spent in one summer i spent close to like four or five hundred dollars buying clippings of stuff on ebay just so i could get all this information that I couldn't find elsewhere on different products. Um, finding old product catalogs, um, all that kind of stuff. I had to, I had to try to like, you know, just, I don't know. It was almost like being investigative in some way. I didn't even think about it as journalism. I, I never took a journalism class, but I guess that's what I was doing. I was researching old print materials and whatnot to try to find out information and trying to make notes of, terms that I kept hearing and mapping it all out. So it seems like that, um, that the, the kind of the crafting of the story behind sneakers, it it seems like that the, um, it's kind of like this sort of symbiotic relationship, I guess, where like when the media and people like yourself started to actually sort of search for this stuff and write about these things that the brand started to really double down and craft deeper stories. Did you, does, does that seem like that's true to you? Um, I, it absolutely does. Um, you know, I don't ever want it to come across as like an egotistical thing, but like, I think that the blogs and I'm not saying just ours, I'm talking about everybody else who came after us too, is that blogs had a gigantic influence on the way brands operate. Um, there are, I mean, unbeknownst to a lot of folks at some of the brands, some of the terms they use were coined by blogs. You know, release date reminder that right. comes back to Mr. Stack and his and his love for alliterations. Where do you think kicks on court release date reminder uh, throwback Thursday came from? Mm-hmm. That came from my that was influenced by from you know Mr. Stack that I then put into columns that then I continue to use on social media. Um, now you actually had a moment right at a wasn't there a moment uh, a specific moment I think I heard about you talk about this on a on another podcast where you went to like a trade like a uh, a sneaker show. 
and you had a camera and nobody really knew what blogs were at the time. And, but there were like some sneaker guys, I think from maybe Reebok or something that did know, right. They were kind of like ahead of the curve and like, yeah, let me get this guy to like start covering some of our stuff. Can you just discuss that a little bit and how that kind of shaped your, almost like your, your, I guess your business strategy kind of in a way. Yeah. So we didn't get any support from brands in the beginning, like none. I mean, none, almost like it was, I was so mad. Like, you know, I had to just take it after a while. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Fine. They don't, they don't, they're not going to work with us. We're just going to do it our own way. Um, but the first time I went to, uh, the magic trade show, um, was in spring of 07. And I went there and every brand shut you out. Nope. Can't come in here. Can't come in here. Can't come in here. Um, but one fella at Reebok took a gigantic risk, Paul Baklowski. Um, and he took a huge risk. And he's like, look, he's like, take all the photos you want. You need information. I'll help you with the information. There were like one or two products. He's like, these were collabs with special, like a brand partner. Please don't take photos of these. Like, I'm, I want the brand partner to put out the first information. Right. But everything else, he's like, look, he's like, you're going to make my job easier to sell shoes if you can help tell the story of this brand and you can help tell the product. Now, he knew of the site. He was a regular reader of the site, so that definitely helped things. But for the most part, brands like didn't know how to categorize us. You know, they, they were like, well, if it's media, then you got to go through traditional PR. Well, you go talk to the traditional PR and they're like, oh, you're not a print magazine? Oh, well, you don't really need samples then. We'll just send you the information after it goes to print with the magazine. They're like, no, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, 2007, 2008, even as late as 09, brands still did not understand really what blogs were. Um, I really feel like it wasn't until I opened the the store in, in 2010 that brands were like, that some brands actually got it, that oh, wait, there's an actual real number of people who read these things called blogs. Right. You know, I don't know, like, it, it's just, it's crazy to go back and, like, think that way. But, you know, again, if you if you didn't come from that space and you weren't in that world, I get why you, you might not understand. Right. They didn't get the content marketing side of things, which is actually kind of interesting. I, I listened to this guy. There's this advertising veteran. His name is Jimmy Smith. Um, are you familiar with that name by, by any chance? He was a... Uh, I think it was at Wyden Kennedy, I want to say, uh, which was Nike's. The name sounded familiar, yeah. Anyway, he's this, he's this black dude with threads, and like he, he um, put together, um, he kind of brought content marketing to Nike. Um, he, uh, he was behind, like one of the guys behind uh, the, uh, like the old sort of like, uh, what was it, the, uh, like a, there was a VHS tape. Remember the Nike streetball commercials? And it was kind of like the, the I do yeah it's so like the, the, yeah they're amazing um, it was kind of like the uh, the musical pattern or whatever um, with with the ball and kind of that was back when and one obviously was doing their stuff as well which was a, a an agency Crispin Porter Burguski put that whole thing together but it's it's almost like there was this moment where they started to realize that hey we can we can put this stuff out there um, and sort of disguise these ads right uh, even even though these things are ads it's really just content. And so I even think about um, uh, like Space Jam, right? Like was space like or or there's this uh, great documentary, um, which this is a little later in the line and it has nothing to do with sneakers. But there's this um, documentary that Red Bull, the snowboard snowboarding documentary that Red Bull did uh, back in like '06 or something like that, um, which was literally just this amazing cinematography of these snowboarders. 
and you like you just don't even you don't know that this thing is an ad. like the whole thing is an ad for Red Bull, right? Like you just but you don't know because it's amazing content, right? So it seems like that there was this moment that happened with that. Um, but speaking of um, speaking of contacts, um, we I think a lot of people a lot of people that listen to this show like they're designers that work for you know NFL teams or or creatives that work in the sports uh, creative uh, or space. There's this big thing with these brands, like whether it's Nike or the NFL or whatever. And like when you see leaks happen, um, a lot of times like they'll they'll send out like a cease and desist, or they have these attorneys that kind of do that. And it's and it seems I remember with you there was this moment where some kind of leak had happened, um, and everybody was kind of posting these things to their websites and stuff. And you at the time didn't have any contacts within the industry. And, and, a, and a colleague of yours, I guess, had reached out to you and was like, hey, you should probably take these down. Nike just reached out and you sort of took a risk and was like, I'm going to leave them up until they call me or contact me so that you could kind of start building a relationship with them. So I'm curious if you could discuss that particular instance and then how that instance uh, and that risk that you took eventually led to developing contacts in the business. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, this was all the way into 2008 now by the, this moment. And I had to get all my information secondhand from from retailers or other leaks and whatever. Never could get anything official from a brand. Um, I even had contacts with designers and category managers at brands, but nobody from PR would do anything for us. Um, and because again, we weren't real, right? We didn't print a magazine, or we weren't right. on television. We weren't real. So I got. I got a, a text from somebody. They're like, "Hey, um, I saw you reposted this photo. I just got a, I just got a call from or an email from somebody at Nike requesting to take it down. Um, I'm just giving you the heads up. They're probably going to contact you." And I thought to myself, "Awesome! I'm doing absolutely nothing until they contact me." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm like, "Here is my way of getting an at Nike email address for right, somebody right, right. in communications." And I waited until they contacted me, and sure enough, they did. And uh, we got in touch that way. And that was my first contact with Nike PR um, was through that. And that I think that then I, the next time I was in New York City, um, I contacted that person again or, or whatever. And that day or the next day, I then got to be on court with the USAB team, um, you know, doing something for... Uh, I guess this was in 09 leading up to, um, or no, this is 08. This is right before the Olympic games. And so it was only a couple of months later. Yeah. I'm in, in New York city at, at, uh, at where that, Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the rock, whatever they call that place, uh, Rockefeller center. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm sitting courts, I'm sitting on the court taking photographs there, um, with USAB. So were you uh, there on the, behalf of Nike or what for through your own brand? I mean, I was there on behalf of Nice Kicks uh, yeah. at a Nike-controlled event. Okay, I see, I see. So they had, at this point, they'd realized, like, there's some there's some weight in, in letting some of these, like, this blogging world is, we got to let some of these guys in, give them some access. Yeah, and I think, I think it really helped because I was able to actually not just be a phone call or an email. I actually got to make a face-to-face impression, but I wouldn't have had the chance to make that face-to-face impression had it not been for... Um, you know, the request to remove the content. Right, right. And so that, that, uh, that really was 
mostly like relationship building and soft skills really uh, it seems like that kind of led exactly. led to that um so one thing one thing that um in the in the world of of branding um it's kind of commonly known that a brand is not necessarily what a company says that something is uh rather it's what a consumer says that it is right so it's like mm-hmm. um a, a more of an idea or a perception or some kind of like thing that a consumer holds about a product or a service or a person like in their own mind right and so as yes. and and i know that you totally get this because i've seen this come from from your your company and, and some of the things you've written on this, but as a branding professional, all you can do is to try to sort of shape those perfections with, or those perceptions with your actions when you provide content experiences and interactions with products. So that said, I remember the first time I heard the term Space Jam Jordans, and I thought that was a very interesting um, thing to call them because I mean I, I even had to because we're talking about a movie that came out when I was like in high school right so I I feel like I had to uh, I went and looked it up to be like were those called the Space Jam Jordans right like I I just it it seems like that it was that was always what they were called even though that they weren't officially called the Space Jam Jordans however you seem to have discovered that the community. Um, was naming or sort of claiming this cultural ownership of this product and referring to it as that. So you you decided to sort of optimize your own digital strategies and SEO strategies to capitalize on that. So can you discuss this realization and then how it kind of shaped your strategy in targeting content moving moving forward and kind of the lexicon of how like brand names are used? Exactly. So um, you know, in two thousand nine, the Space Jams returned for the first time since their uh, first release in 2000. And there was that song with Lil Wayne, Drake, I think it was called Forever. Um, ironically, I think it was from the, um, the LeBron James soundtrack. Um, but anyways, um, there's a line that, that Lil Wayne says like, hello, it's the Martian Space Jam Jordans. And I noticed like, you know, we were ranking and I'd optimize our, our articles about the Air Jordan 1 Space Jam. But I saw all these incoming keyword or traffic off of that term, Space Jam Jordans. And like light bulb really went off. I'm like, of course, like number one song on the radio. Why would people not be searching for that in Google that way? And, you know, it goes back to like putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who's seeking out information. What are people going to call something? You know, you know what the, you know what they're looking for, but you're going to have to almost like work backwards to help them get to you for that information. Right. Um, and so I, I immediately started building pages as well as altering some of the pages to optimize for that exact term, Space Jam Jordans. Um, and that then led us to, um, I think it was, we did an interview with the LA Times and a couple other media outlets because... They were searching for information themselves on the Space Jam Jordans, and there we were, number one on, wow. on that. Yeah, um, and yeah, so it's like one of those things that kind of like had this snowball effect um, for us. Um, and yeah, but it like you know it goes back to the importance of like knowing how knowing how people are talking. Like you got to talk to the audience. You have to listen to the audience. I'd say, you know, it's more important than talking to them. You got to talk with them, converse with them, but learn what people are saying, learn what people are interested in. Right. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that made us very different in the beginning was having an active and live comment section that, and being, you know, adopting social media since we were on MySpace in 06, like, Allowing there to be as much two-way communication was was paramount for us. 
uh, it allowed us, especially myself, who didn't know everything about shoes, to learn what as much as I could about shoes and learn as much as I could about people who, you know, weren't raised in Fresno, Grenada, and Canada. Right. Learn about new things that way from the from the community. Well, and it, and, it, and it kind of seems like that um, if you remember early on, like those sneaker communities were very. Um, uh, it was almost like this, uh, you know how like Microsoft used to like make things super hard and Microsoft people were like, yeah, uh, only smart people can do this and we want it to be this way, right? Sort of thing. It seemed like it was kind of like that in the sneaker community and those early forums and stuff where um, people were using like lingo and all this sort of like uh, sneaker nomenclature and it was kind of hard to, if you're just like a sort of casualist, like sneaker lover, it didn't really seem like it was for you, right? Like it wasn't very like inclusive and it seems like that. It was, it was not, no. Yeah. And it seems like that you sort of positioned your brand from day one to kind of be like this down to earth sneaker brand. Cause, cause this is, I think this is why that I resonated with, with nice kicks because I was not into it like that, right? Like I mentioned earlier, I was only into the visual side of things. I, I didn't really care like how things were made or some of these like terminology and stuff. I just thought, oh, that looks cool on feet. Uh, you know, I like to look at that. So was this an intentional thing for you or did this kind of happen by accident over time? Or maybe it was just like you're subconsciously injected your own kind of personality into this, you know, quote unquote, like nice guy of sneakers website. Yeah, it was 1000% intentional from the very beginning. I was, you know, the very nature of using the name Nice Kicks, like that was a term I heard everywhere I'd lived. Fresno, Grenada, you know, um, Victoria, BC, Austin, Texas. Those are all, that was a, a, a way that people started a conversation and like gave somebody, pro, you know, props on, and it was like a great icebreaker that I, I would hear everywhere. Um, but I wanted it, like what turned me off on the forums back in the day was that there were a lot of people who really tried, didn't make it easy on new people to, to take interest in it. Um, and I thought like you need to treat each blog post as much as you can, as though this is the person's first foray into learning anything about shoes. Like don't write it in a way that they've been reading your site from the beginning and are going to know everything that you're referencing. Right. Try to make it as inclusive as possible. Make it so people can, you know, feel like they can click a link and dive deeper into something when you're referencing something, you know, a, a, a model of shoe or brand or product, you know, don't just approach it from, they should know if they're already here. And, um, I always wanted to give more than what people were maybe expecting when it came to, uh, that information then making it as inclusive as possible for sure. Yeah. Now at some point, um, you made the decision to launch a brick and mortar store. Um, I was in Austin back in 2011 for South by Southwest. Um, and I remember seeing some nice kick shirts around. I think I just like maybe well, Twitter came out what like Oh nine, I think somewhere around there. Um, Oh seven, we joined. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's, I, I think, uh, I joined in Oh eight too. Now I remember it was like, I, I, or I joined early and then I didn't do anything for like a year. (laughs) 
<laughs> like that seemed to be the common common thing. But I remember seeing some nice kick shirts around there. Um, I didn't get a chance to stop at the store, but um, I, I, can, I can definitely tell that the store sort of was a, a cultural and a historical thing for the Nice Kicks brand. Um, can you discuss the decision to open a physical location and then uh, sort of how you viewed that location as an extension of the, the brand and the local community? Yeah, for sure. So I, I created the, I wanted to have the store. I mean, ever since I had worked retail, I always kind of had this thing in the back of my mind. I wanted to have a store one day. And, you know, in the beginning when I didn't get any support from brands, I had to rely on my friends who are retailers for help on information and just learning the ins and outs of the business. Like, I mean, Jen Ford at Premium Goods, Derek Curry from Politics, um, Darren from from uh, Addict, they were all like three guys, I three guy and gal that I talked to regularly that helped me. Uh, Teresa from SF2, they all helped me in the very beginning, learning as much as I could. And as I spent so much time with retailers, I'm like, man, I would love to do a store as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we were like in the middle, like barely climbing out of a recession in America at the time in like early 2009 when I decided, yep, we're going to do it. And, you know, we had had some success in terms of build the, you know, building quite a great audience on, on nicekicks.com and, and on Twitter at that time and even Facebook. Um, and we took that next step to, to open a, a retail brick and mortar store. And the idea of it really was I wanted to create an offline extension of the digital brand. You know, up until that time, Nice Kicks was only what you saw that you connected through on a, on a keyboard and a monitor. You didn't you didn't think of we didn't have like an offline space that you could really feel what the brand was about and what we really represented. Um, and so that was the purpose of, of opening that store was to create an offline extension of the digital brand. Did you, and I had read or heard that you sold out of nice kicks merch like day one, right? Like right, right away. Had you sold nice kicks merch before or, or had you offered that before from your site? I did a couple t-shirts before I got a, I got a couple C and D's from, uh, from some folks that they thought the logo was too similar to the New York Knicks. I played a flip on the nice kicks. I put, it made a flip on the New York Knicks logo with nice kicks. I'll, right. show, I'll send you the graphic. I think you'll appreciate it and you'll probably say it's not confusingly similar, but whatever. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> sorry, NBA. We didn't sell anymore. Yeah. Um, well, this goes back to the lawyer conversation we had earlier, right? Where they just have yeah, full time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, um, the, the, uh, yeah, we sold out of our merch on day one. And I thought like, I, when I made the orders, I'm like, Oh my gosh, these shirts are going to last me so long when we had like 300 of them. And then we sold out of every single one of them on the first day. We had over 700, some people come through on the opening day. I was like, Oh my gosh, what have we That's done insane. here? You know, like what is going on? And, um, yeah, it was, that was a, a wild, wild day. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Now, were you were you still uh, a part of it when it's you scaled to like other locations, like other states or anything like that? No, I, I sold I sold the store in 2014, um, so I haven't been in the mix with retail for quite a while. Gotcha. Um, yeah, they opened a store in LA and San Francisco since. Now, is that um, they obviously are using the old logo and you rebranded, right? So was that part of that sort Correct. of decision? Okay. Yeah, I have new. Yeah, new branding for for Nice Kicks, um, and they're they're still rolling with uh, their old logo, with the old logo. Gotcha, gotcha. So you've essentially you you've zeroed back in on being a publishing and a digital media company. Um, 
when it comes to content creation, uh, I think that, again, uh, uh, kind of referring to this weird shift of things that guys like me and you have been able to see with our age uh, from a profession, you know, at one point in time, you could be like, I want to be a graphic designer, right? And, or just, I want to be a photographer. Uh, but now it's almost like in order to survive as not only as a brand, but as an individual professional, you have to be multidisciplinary, Right. And so, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, for you and many entrepreneurs like yourself, you tend to have this multidisciplinary mentality where it's like, let's figure it out. And you recognize the value of making content, whether it's like visible, audible, or written. Um, so, I'm curious, how has the evolution of digital publishing and, sh- and social media shaped, um, uh, you know, I guess this sort of uh, brand strategy for you? And now, would you even consider Nice Kicks more, you know, with, uh, because it has, you have 4 million followers on Instagram? I mean, dude, that is insane. So it's like, would you consider yourself more of a social media brand, um, like overall, or also like, is the website still very important to, to what you do? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think it, sometimes, every once in a while, I'll take a look back and it's, it's amazing to me how many different pivots. Our, and how many different ways our company has evolved in in 15 years since the first WordPress 1.3 installation. Um, but that I think is more of a a story of like what it takes to to survive. You know, I don't think that any brand or any company who has been in business like we have for 15 years has been able to do, keep the same model in 15 years. Absolutely right. no way. And I think that if you really want to grow, you have to be ready to not get comfortable in it at any time with what you're doing. And I look back at like times where I've let things get out of control or not go the right way or we haven't moved fast enough. And that really comes down to complacency as well as kind of accepting that you're like, oh, I'm, I've, got, I've got to where I need to be and almost like not – appreciating the feeling of you got to you got to get move and get ready for the next thing. Right. Um, but yeah, the web is now a small part of what we do, but it is still a very important piece that we operate from. Um, you know, our website, like you said in the intro, it's still getting millions of visitors a month. You know, I'm never going to discount that. And I think that web also, when it comes to people who are searching for information, it's my number one channel of distribution. Right. You know, people who engage with us on social, that is kind of like down the funnel kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it is top of funnel in terms of uh, creating and, and spreading new ideas, but those people have already, con- are, you know, the, primarily are already connected to us. Um, the web is still a gigantic resource for connecting to people who aren't familiar with you yet. And that that's what I do think that some companies are, they're they're taking their eye off the ball with that, right? Um, I think that for us, we're yeah. I'll never I'll never give up on web. I think it's an extremely important piece of it. Yeah, I, of I, it. I'm in the camp. I'm in that camp too, man. Because I I, I do part of me also doesn't trust <laughs> some of these companies and just like flipping the switch on some algorithm or whatever. But I, I'm I am curious though with with the um, was there ever a point where you, because obviously you were one of the you were one of the first um, sneaker blogs, right? So you kind of got in early. You're building this brand over time. Some other people pop up over time, um, doing doing things like whether it's sneaker loot news or whatever. People that I'm sure that you know all these all these guys. Um, was there ever a moment where you were like, we're um, uh, 
Cause I know for me, like as I'm building this, like I still sometimes will look at things and there's kind of like this like friendly competition and you're like, how do I make things my voice versus, you know, if there's a cultural event around sneakers, um, all of everyone's going to cover it. Right. So like, how do you, um, make something sort of specific to who nice kicks is and bring your voice to the table versus, you know, what another brand or, or blog would do, or even now, like obviously uh, ESPN has like the, the, what is their kicks account? I can't even remember the name of it right now, but I know they got like a, like something. Sneaker Center, I think. Yeah, Sneaker Center, Sneaker Center. Sneaker Center. Which is literally just an, it's just an Instagram account, right? Like I don't even know that there's a, there's, I don't think there's a Twitter. So how do you sort of uh, carve out your voice um, in covering similar events? I mean, so there's a similar, there's there, the events might be the same, right? But, our voice is our voice. Their voice is their voice. Um, I think, ironically, we're gonna. I'm gonna reference somebody from ESPN, even from SportsCenter, uh, Peter King. He said, like he talked about how he talked about how news is a commodity. That was the first time I remember reading news is a commodity. Consumers don't really care that much about where they're getting the news from, as long as it's truthful, which has a whole new meaning in 2020. But the right. um, the don't people don't put a lot of value on it like they once did. Right. And your voice is what is yours. That's what you can trade against. Otherwise you're in a race of who can say it the loudest and fastest. And hmm. to me, like, and as a, as a brand publication, that's not attractive at all. Right. Who can be the first to web, you know, like that for, there are very few people that can do that. And once that becomes your thing, you better believe they're going to be racing you in that same race. Like we talk about the Woj bomb, right? In the NBA. Right, right. There are a lot of people who are using that same strategy. Now, while the Woj bomb and Wojnowski had this gigantic advantage because he was like the Warriors in a way, playing a new game, a new style of the game, and it took years for the league to catch up to them. You know, Woj has a lot of people racing him to try to be first to web or first to Twitter or first to whatever. Yeah. To get in front of him. So it's like people can play that game too. But yeah, and somebody will win that race, right? Like it feels like eventually will win that race. It feels like that is a very stressful yeah. and like uh, not great place to be because someone else wins, like yeah. you're gone. They're not following you for your con- for like who you are just because you're first. Especially when your race to first is off is when you're using your least connections least l-e-a-s-e-d connections of social like those that's the other part of why i love web and email and text way more than than social like yeah social i can reach people in a different way and we can talk to just an enormous audience there but those connections are borrowed those are not ones you own right those email addresses those text you know those text messages that that website we own that. We control that. We can have that direct one-to-one unfiltered communication with our individuals that way. Right. Uh, Instagram. Oh my gosh. You, you're posting something up and you're hoping it gets the right amount of likes and comments in the first 30 minutes so that you can access more of the audience you've built. Yeah. So, which is, which is craziness. It just drives me, so <laughs> drives going back me to up you, the wall. <laughs> but sorry, ten, 10 minutes down the road, going back to your question, how do you approach it? You have to do it your way. I have to give it your, you have to do it through your voice. I mean, that we, we have a new show on uh, that we are doing on Instagram on IGTV um, that our creative director, Gabe Ocean does called um, the shock drop. And it's like two to three minutes. And he is going into a topic that 
it is it is somewhat news related, but it's like providing the backstory and some context and other conversation all around it. Um, and you know, we put together a production for what are what is happening right now. Um, but it really comes through like our brand showing up, t- talking about those, yeah. talking about what's going on versus just, you know, reposting. Yeah. I actually watched one of those today. The one with, uh, the, the big, probably the biggest sneaker news in a long time is Kanye sort of in his whole rants about, <laughs> um, wanting to be on the board yes. of all these companies and Adidas and he's going to fix Puma and, <laughs> and all the, all these types yep. of things. So that's pretty great, man. So, uh, so another thing I've noticed your Instagram, you've also got, you've kind of like uh, niched out a couple little little accounts. You have like nice kicks hoops, which you know makes sense in the sneaker world because it feels like basketball basketball culture drives sneaker culture. Would you say that that's probably true? For the most part, it was part? more true in the past. It's still a very important part of it, um, but it's le- I wouldn't. I don't want to take away from basketball. It is. It's its own thing. Like it. There are more things driving. When we were kids, oh my gosh, basketball was sneaker culture. Right, like, exactly. I mean, yeah. Everything, but still a very important part, yes. Yeah. So, and you've also got like the Nice Kicks Vault, which is kind of uh, your take on sports culture history. Um, I've noticed a couple, like this seems to be kind of a, and the logo for that's great. It's like a floppy disk uh, kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I've noticed yep. this... Um, I've noticed a couple brands doing that where, where they kind of uh, uh, like slam magazine has done that where they have all these little sub accounts. Um, and then you have, uh, and like, obviously the NBA does it, which, it, you know, they've got like the kicks version and the fashion fits of the NBA or whatever. Uh, I'm curious why the segmentation as opposed to keeping everything under like one singular account. You remember that song by Everclear, everything to everyone. Yep. So that's, that's the problem with doing everything under one account. Gotcha. You try like if you read through the lyrics, you'll see it, what, I'm, what I'm referencing at the last line of the of the chorus. But it's like you try to be everything to everyone. You can't do it all on one account. It's just not possible, not right. effectively. What we found is that when we started in 2006, sneakers itself was such a niche thing. And when we talk about sneakers, it was like if you went to Foot Locker, there were possibly two or three shoes on the wall that you know NiceKicks.com would have had great interest in. Right. You know, today, now that small three shoes is now almost the entire wall of Foot Locker, you know, and you're having to kind of get like the niche has grown so much into mainstream, you now have sub niches to it. Yeah. And that's what those accounts are. They're sub niches, not on, not hinging on product, but on interests. Um, Yeah. Quite frankly, I, I, beat myself up that I'm like, why did I not do this sooner? Like I knew this was, I knew this was coming, right? I knew that this was coming and I wish I'd done it so sooner, but you know, never too late to start doing the right thing. And that's why we focused on two very important verticals for us. Nice kicks hoops, which at first we had done as kicks on court. Um, and then we just changed to nice kicks hoops. Mm -hmm. Um, kicks on court was mirroring what the column was we did on the website starting back in like 08 or whatever. Um, and so the idea was taking some of our long-running columns on our website and then doing an Instagram version of each one of those things. Um, nice, but the thing that we did is like we got it. We wanted to not make it one-to-one with what the web was, so we had to uh, take a different approach, make it right for the platform. Um, and you'll see Nice Kicks Vault and Nice Kicks Hoops and other like sub genres, sub niches show up, and they'll be, you know, they'll be offshoots of what Nice Kicks is. 
but in a more like verticalized form. Right. And I think for that is it allows somebody who is of a certain demographic or certain interest to really be able to have a better relationship with the content um, than just throwing everything on one main account. Gotcha. So um, I, I kind of want to start closing the loop here um, and and talk about maybe some more personal things if you're up for it. I know that you are a father um, and you have uh, a couple kids, I think. Um, I'm curious if this whole entrepreneurial journey um, affects the way that you view their own education, like when it comes to whether they're in you know public school or, or public, private school or whatever, and it's kind of the things that are being taught on a day to day basis. And how is this going? How are they? You going to try to like help them evolve? You know, and this is a personal question that I legitimately want to know from my own perspective too, because I'm the father of three kids. I'm trying to look at this and be like, do we entrepreneurs try to raise our children a different way? in comparison to, hey, challenge the status quo of what, you know, the quote unquote, the man at school is trying to, <laughs> trying to tell you what to do, right? Whereas you also have the balance of having college professor parents. Yeah. So I would say that one of the things that my father said to me once, and I don't know why I remembered it so vividly. And he told me like, it was so important to really find what you really love. And you know, I, I really try to stress that with, with my kids. I really want them to find what they are very interested in um, and what they are good at. Um, I think I was raised public school. I went to private school when I was in the Caribbean. I, you know, I think there's, there's different methods of, of learning from both sides. Um, but I really, I really cherished my time in public school. Um, is what gave me the best preparation for what the real world was like, in my opinion. Um, but I think that one of the things that I really want them to do is develop who they are um, on their own. You know, I had a conversation not too long ago with one of my children who, who used like, he put an NK or something like that in his username. And I, and I really don't want him to, to do, I, I don't want to feel like anything I've done ha- should, should in any way influence who he is. Mm-hmm. You know, I really, I don't push the sneaker thing at all with them. You know, I try to go out of my way to not have it influence them because I really want them to find it on their own. Right. You know, if my dad had such a heavy influence on me, I wouldn't have discovered sneakers. I'd be, I'd probably have an Airstream renovation business like he did. You know, like, um, I, so I, I'm, I think that the best thing I learned from my father was like, you know, he had this side business, this side hustle, this side interest, and he was very passionate about it. And I learned that I could be passionate about something too, but it just so happens that we weren't passionate about the same things. Right. So I don't want them to be too influenced by directly what I do. I do want them to be influenced by following something that you're passionate about and working really hard to achieve things, even if you don't have a direct goal of what you're looking for, but just to do it to find out what you discover along the process. Right. Now, have they have they taken uh, a, a liking to sneakers and whatnot? Because I know at least my kids like they're not interested in design at all. <laughs> it's... Yeah, I mean they, they they definitely do take they, more interest than I had at their age. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't. It, it's not that I wouldn't want them to to work in this field or anything, but I really want them to to find what they are interested in and passionate about because right. that's that's what I did. You know, 
something that I've really transitioned to doing in the last couple of years is it's not about the what, it's really about the why and how. Right. And I want that to be the same for them. You know, nice kicks isn't what it is because of sneakers. It's the why and how of having a passion for something and continuing to search for things about it. That's what, that's what it is. That's why it's here. It's not because it's about shoes. Yeah. And I want the same for themselves. Well, that's, that's amazing, man. And I, and I think sort of in that same vein and wrapping up, I'd love to close with a story that I think, uh, was was a was a beautiful moment in your career. Uh, you've been one of the lucky ones as a media entrepreneur and have been able to make a lifestyle thus far writing about and providing commentary on something that you love. Um, I did hear you tell a story about reconnecting with a guy who was an early manager of yours in some teenage job. Um, uh, must have I think it might have even been that sneaker sales job and and was just pivotal in your career with some advice and encouraging you. And you wanted to reach out and say thank you. And you, you sort of um, eventually found this guy. So I'm curious if you could tell that story and then kind of what it, what it felt like to, to, give, to fill in those blanks, right, with him and how, how that reaction was. Yeah, so uh, my first manager, Joe Scalzo, um, he was the one who told me, he called me one Friday afternoon to come down to the store because he had all these shocks xts that were on clearance and he knew that i had, he had heard that i'd bought and sold things on ebay and he was like hey man i want you to come down and see these maybe you can buy a bunch of these put them up on the internet and sell them um and if they don't work you can always bring them back and, and return them and i took him up on it and, and sold all the shoes that we had and started getting like loads of shipments at the store to do the same thing over and over but one time he told me and it was like the last time i got to talk with him before he was let go and he was let go on a day I wasn't at work. I actually found out at my graduation that he was, that he was let go. But the last conversation he gave to me was that he was like really proud of what I'd done. And he's like, man, just look me up one day when he's like, I know you're going to do something great. Just look me up one day and promise me you're going to look me up and tell me what you're doing. And I spent, you know, like it, it hit me. I don't know how many years later I tried to look for Joe. Uh, I think it was really once I got onto Facebook, I had former like associates and coworkers adding me and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, this is cool. Seeing like three different coworkers add me on Facebook. I'm like, do any of you, are you still in touch with Joe Scalzo by chance? You know, Scal Joe and like folks back in Victoria. Yeah. I've seen him a couple times. Uh, you know, I don't have his information and I couldn't find him on Facebook. Couldn't find him anywhere forever. And I, you know, every couple years I'd, I'd try to find Joe. And I just couldn't find, and the guy like, you know, bless his heart, you know, dude, like just is one of those rare guys that you just couldn't find, you know, like just right. as easily as a Google search. And, um, I finally tracked him down, finally got in touch with him. Um, and it was so great to get to, to connect with him and, um, just tell him like, Hey man, you told, you made me promise you to look you up one day and I'm doing it now. And it, it came at a time where I was personally at an extreme low point in my life, but it didn't change the fact that I had made this promise to, to reconnect with him. And it was, it was great getting to, to, to talk with Joe and, you know, he did, I, I don't think he had any idea how many different ways and how many different things he taught me. Um, but it was, it was an important thing for me. And, I think that's one thing that 
I don't know if it's if I learned that from my parents who like moved around and you know were primarily grew up away from where they grew up, um, but or lived uh, different from where they grew up, but like making mental notes of the people who had a tremendous impact in your life, and then following up and letting them know that years down the road and you know just reconnecting with them i think is something that can't be you know overvalued or whatever like i mean i i really i really think it's an important thing for people to do um you know we are who we are not just based on what we've done no matter how great you are no matter who's telling their life story we are who we are because of things we've learned from other people and a lot of people have had an impact on on what we've accomplished in our lives. And I think it's a very important thing to always, you know, be grateful for those you've had in your life and show that gratitude to them. Um, because we wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't be doing what we are if it wasn't for the people who came before us. Wow. That's beautifully said, man. Well, Matt, it's been awesome getting to know you, uh, over the last month or so. Uh, we've had some, some conversations offline. Um, obviously enjoyed this podcast. I very much appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, big fan of the blog, big fan of what you've been able to do as an entrepreneur. Um, so if you could just leave listeners with your, uh, social handles where people can reach out to you or, and follow, follow your work. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Matt Halfhill. Um, find my stuff on uh, online at Nice Kicks as well as NiceKicks.com. Um, if you want to hit me up by email, it's Matt.Halfhill at NiceKicks.com. Awesome, man. Well, thanks a lot for taking time to come aboard. Thank you. My next guest is going to be Dexton Debery. Dexton is a filmmaker and owner of a company called Falcon, which is a content production agency that has worked with brands like Nike, Brand Jordan, the MLB, and more. He is also, his company uh, is behind a film fittingly called Unbanned, which is a very worthy watch, and it is essentially a film about the infamous Air Jordan 1 that got banned from the NBA. So that should be a very interesting listen. Uh, you can follow him on social media. Uh, his Instagram is at Dexton Debery. That is D-E-X-T-O-N-D-E-B-O-R-E-E. -E. And then his company is falconcontent.com. Big thanks again to Matt Halfhill for coming aboard the podcast. Definitely always touted as one of the nicest guys in the sneaker industry. I think we found that out for sure in this episode. Shared a ton of great information about the story of Nice Kicks. As he mentioned, you can find Nice Kicks on social at Nice Kicks, uh, and their website is nicekicks.com. Uh, and then Matt's social is at Matt Halfhill. That is at M-A-T-T-H-A-L-F-I-H-I-L-L, -I -L -L. and he can be found on Twitter and Instagram. Past Makers of Sport episodes can be found in Apple Podcasts at makersofsport.com slash iTunes, on SoundCloud, 
on Spotify or on the website makersofsport.com. If you enjoy the sponsor-free content coming from Makers of Sport and are interested in keeping it ad-free, you can support the show by becoming a member of the private community at makersofsport.com slash community. In exchange for your fiscal support, you'll have access to additional and ever-changing content such as private Q&As with future former and special guests, monthly live video hangouts, as well as interact, share private, trustworthy feedback, and build like-minded relationships in the live chat. You'll also receive a 20% discount on all Makers of Sport products by joining that community. Speaking of products, uh, I do have an apparel store. You can check that out at makersofsport.com store. There will be new designs launching soon. Every single purchase and every single dollar that you guys support this show, it goes back into pouring into the Makers of Sport brand. Uh, this thing is really not like a profitable venture for me. It's totally a side project. And when you support the show, it helps me to buy equipment, to host, to pay my podcast editor, uh, and to continue writing, researching, and bringing educational sports design content to you for free. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, click the five star and write about your positive experience with the show. This helps others like yourself discover the podcast and the value it brings educationally to people wanting to work on the creative side of the sports business. If you can't support the show fiscally, these comments are an amazing way to show your support and love. I read every single one of them and the, they inspire me and they help me to keep going. Uh, I will accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you enjoy listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on social. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. <laughs>